<laughs> All right, good morning, Fairhill Church. It's good to be with you. Uh, if kids four to six would like to head to the, the kids' lesson, they can do that. Uh, otherwise, uh, we are going to be continuing in our series on the book of Judges. Now, last week, last week we saw uh, the kind of quintessential perfect judge, Othniel. All right, the, the analogy for Othniel, uh, he's kind of like the 1950s Superman of Judges. All right, he's very clean and squeaky, and uh, he gets the girl in the end. He gets Lois Lane. Um, it's, it's, it's the ideal image. And we start to see that uh, this, this starts to get a lot messier as we start to go forward. And today we are looking at the slightly less uh, glamorous story of Ehud. Ehud. All right, when we think of Ehud, uh, what are we thinking of? Uh, all right. This whole story, this is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent to trash talk. It's straight up. All right, this is the, the your mama joke of, of judges. All right, you know your mama jokes? All right, all right. you have to give one if you, if you talk. All right, your mama's so fat, when she sat around the house, she sat around the house. All right, all right. All right, this is the ancient equivalent of that kind of joke. All right, it's stupid, and it's, uh, it's weird that we would even talk about this, but all right, this is one big, your king joke. And your king is so fat and ugly and dumb that your idols, your idols are weak and stupid and useless. And it's supposed to be this great insult to idolatry because... Uh, there are different ways we can battle idolatry. There are different ways we can battle evil. And in this case, what they're giving us a new weapon in our, in our arsenal, the insult. That we can look at idolatry and we can look at evil in its face and we can laugh at it. And we can see how ridiculous and how useless it is to, to run after these idols in all of their foolishness and all of their weakness that we are told to make a mockery of any God that would not be the God of, of creation, the God of salvation in Christ. And so uh, this is a different kind of passage, and we're going to be looking uh, at Judges 3, 12 through 30. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it ruins the story. All right. We're going to walk through it uh, and see, okay, how does it develop? How do we build this... Uh, this great insult to idolatry that we might lift up our God in, uh, in great joy. So uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you are multifaceted and that scripture is not just this, uh, this doldrum of, of flat stories, but that we get to see the, the rise of, of all of these different colors. And Father, uh, we thank you for this story. We thank you that when we stand before idolatry and as, as dangerous as it is to the soul that you are so much more powerful that we can laugh in the face of it knowing that we have a great savior and deliverer and that we serve a great God as king. So, Father, would you help us with these things uh, sink deep into our hearts and would you give us uh, a greater conviction that Jesus Christ is, 
is powerful. And would you free us from idolatry and all their foolishness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're starting with a, a spiritual assessment. We've, we've talked about how there's these cycles. And we saw the, the first cycle in Othniel, and yet the people returned to idolatry. And now we have this, this second cycle dealing with, uh, with Eglon and Moab. All right, verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself, this is Eglon, Eglon, the king, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. All right, so once again, Israel has fallen into idolatry. And as they fall into idolatry, God gives them over to oppressors and to foreign nations, and this time into the hand of Eglon, the king, the Moabites. He has taken over Jericho, this this city that represented their coming into the land. That was the first city they, they conquered, and now it's back in the hands of the enemy and he's gathered together these, these two people groups, the Amalekites, the Ammonites. So there's three people groups banding together to subjugate and oppress the Israelites. And behind them is probably most commonly the, the god of Molech. This is this god of fire. He's known for the sacrifices that were offered to him, even, even child sacrifices. So there's this horrible God, and he's, this God fills himself with the strength and with the, the oppression of other people and grows and, and grows fat off of the, the riches of his tributes. And so we have this, all of these people oppressing them under the weight of this God, and here we find ourselves. The Israelites, they are compelled to, to, from all the riches of this land of milk and honey, they're paying tribute to this king. He is consuming all of these blessings that have come from God and are going to, to glorify and lift up Molech and this, these nations. All right, but as bleak as this seems, we have to notice something. Look, look, look at verse uh, 12. That how did Eglon get all of his strength? Because the Lord strengthened him. The Lord strengthened Eglon because they hadn't done what they were supposed to do. And so it's not like Eglon is this great and fearsome king. No, it's that the Lord is behind this. The Lord is, is giving them over. And it's helpful to remember that, that ultimately it's there's never a failing God before us. Our God is never weak, but he might give us over. We've talked about that as these cycles. In response to evil and idolatry to help them see. Now, as the people, they come and bring tribute to the king. It has this worship dynamic. That they, they bow down, they give gifts, they, they give offerings and... You can see that idolatry is wrapped up in all of this. 
that idolatry made it happen, and they're still idolatrously connected to these, this king and to the gods that are underneath them. And so we might feel like, oh, it's like Eglon, the great king, how fearsome he is. All right. But the, the fun part is that God starts to drop little hints, and they're in the Hebrew, actually, that all is not as it seems. And first we start with the name Eglon. All right, Eglon is the king of Moab, and what does it mean? It means something in Hebrew. It means a calf. It means a little baby cow. And it doesn't just mean a, it, it's not a male baby cow, it's a female baby cow. You start to see, okay, this, this would-be great king, he's this little, little heifer set for sacrifice. And you start to realize that, all right, as big and scary and fearsome as this idolatrous king seems, and as much as they're paying tribute to him and, and giving themselves over to him and, and fearing and cowering, in reality, he's much better as a sacrifice. He's not supposed to be sacrificed to you. He is supposed to be the sacrifice. And they're hinting at it that he's not going to stay the tribute king. He is actually going to be the great sacrifice, an honorary burnt offering to the Lord God, consumed on the altar of the real one true God. Now, as we reflect on that, um, we think about the powers that oppress us. We think about the things that we fear. We think about the things that seem uh, so much bigger than us. And we need to recognize that in the eyes of the Lord, all all of these things, they are but sacrificial calves. And these things that feel like we have to pay so much attention to them Maybe they actually need to be sacrificed in the altar. That maybe these great idolatrous kings, these powers, these things that occupy our minds, we don't need to pay more to them. They need to be sacrificed. And we're going to see what that looks like uh, as we go forward. God sends a deliverer to do just that. So we see Ehud. Ehud, please don't get confused. Eglon. Eglon, evil king, Ehud, good guy. All right, he comes and he is the deliverer. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. All right, so we saw that, uh, or I said earlier in the introduction that the these guys start to get, uh, these deliverers, these judges, don't think judges in the wig. Uh, Casey and I just discovered that in England they like still wear the wig, which is nuts. Um, sorry, totally non-secular. Uh, these, are, these are warriors. And yet the warriors, they start to get more and more unlikely. And in this case, we have from the tribe of Benjamin, Ehud. And it says here, uh, he's a left-handed man. All right, that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. It's interpreting it. What it really says is his right hand was messed up. So, yeah, he, he was a left-handed man, but not because, like, oh, I just I learned to write that way. And, uh, 
more, more creative. Because uh, it, it was likely that his hand was, was disabled in some way. And so we have, and oddly enough, what, is it, what does the name Benjamin mean? This means son of the right hand. So the right-handed son, they pick of all of the Benjaminites, Ehud, the one who can't use his right hand. <laughs> and we might think, oh, why, why choose this guy of all the people? All right, it's sort of like, okay, if God is going to battle with, idol- with idols and, and these great idolatrous kings, you know, I'll do it with one hand behind my back. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah, t- let's take them on. I'll send the, the worst of the worst, the weakest of the weak, because this isn't about the, the greatness of the Savior. This is the, the God who's behind them. And the God who works through the weak compared to the th- people who think that they are great and they are strong. But without God behind them, they are far weaker than they realize. And so with that, here comes Ehud coming on to, to deliver the people. I think of Paul when he says, my, my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord tells him that. All right, that is, that's going to become very much the theme of, of judges as we look at these broken people that are used by God. And God actually uses it. Because his right hand is hindered He's able to do the work that he's given. Verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about a foot and a half. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. All right, so what's going on here? All right, this guy looks like absolutely no threat. He doesn't have a hand. And so what you do, you check, you check for the, the, sword or the sword leg and are you hiding anything. All right, this guy doesn't even have a hand to use it. But on that other leg, he has hidden his sword, his dagger, this unexpected gift for Eglon. And he goes and gives his offering. And we meet Eglon for the first time. And we discover now, Eglon was a very fat man. Eglon was a very fat man. Now, in some sense, you, we, we expect in ancient culture, that's kind of terrifying. Because, like, this means he's, like, consuming the world. And remember, he, he represents the Molech, this god who, like, is a fire god and, and pulling all this stuff to himself. And you think, oh, look at this powerful man. All right, but paired with his name, what does he become? This is the fattened calf. And yeah, he's, he's really been being bolstered up. He's being fattened up. He's being plumped up by God so that they have a much better sacrifice. And here is this, this dagger waiting for the fattened calf. All right. We're going to see what's going to happen to him. All right. Verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. 
All right, now notice the details here. This isn't just about kings and, and assassins and battles. Notice, he, he doesn't turn around until he gets to the idols near Gilgal. Behind all of these battles that seem like they're just kind of superficial, this is a battle between gods. And he goes back to kind of this barrier where, think like Easter Island, where the, all the heads are there. All of the idols are lined up, the, the protectors of the Moabites. These idols who are supposed to protect Eglon and his great kingdom. And he makes sure that he goes back and that those idols, they see him. They see him with this secret thing strapped to his leg. And the question is, what are your idols going to do about it? What are your idols able to do to protect your great king in all of his power? And we ask you, okay. We can deal in a very non-supernatural world. But I'm asking you, do you see, do you see the idols behind everything? When you look out into the world, when you go to the mall, do you see the idols? They're standing in the parking lot protecting it. When you see people who are all bolstered up and seem like they're so amazing, do you see the idols that are behind those things? Idols of, of power or money or glory or beauty or wisdom and intelligence, knowledge and strength. And do we cower before them? Do we cower before these idols that seem to be sprinkled about in our culture? When we see battles between the, the church and evil, do we, do we see the idols that are behind these things? That's what Judges wants us to see. It wants us to see this is not just this kind of superficial stuff happening. This is a battle of idols and loves and worship. And so Ehud... He goes strolling past these idols. And the word here is, uh, it's translated, I have a secret message in verse 19. I have a secret message. It doesn't say that exactly. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, I usually don't like attacking the Hebrew like this, but uh, this is a really hard story. And it's supposed to have all these little Hebrew hints. So please don't go trying to do this with every passage. It's not that helpful. Uh, all right, but what is it? There's this word here, debar, which is, it's translated message because it's usually message. But it can also mean just an object, a thing. And so he goes in, he's totally honest. I have something for you. I have a something from the Lord for you. Now, He commanded, this is Eglon again, he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. His cool roof chamber. All right. What does that mean? In this passage, uh, more than any other, this is not a polite passage. The Bible likes to be polite, and translators like to make the Bible polite. It is not polite. 
All right, so what he's saying, this is not a cool room chamber. Uh, this is a, a chamber of happenings where things happen. This is quite the euphemism. Uh, it's a, it's where, where you go to take care of business. The business of the number one and number two sorts. All right? That's where they find him. Uh, and it seems like well, Ehud is definitely not a threat because he doesn't seem too terrified uh, and invites him in to the royal commode. That is where we find this great king. He is sitting on his great throne, the great and wonderful king on his porcelain throne before the world. All right. All right, at this point, I can't, I can't help but think of uh, Elf. All right, well, Will Ferrell, he, he plays an, an elf that's trapped in the North Pole. He's a person, and he goes back to New York, and he's, he's spent all this time with Santa, and he meets his first mall Santa. What does he say? You stink, and you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> all right, here's that. Here's that. Here is his, his literal throne, and... He stinks, and he sits on a throne of something. And, and that's where, what are we supposed to get out of this? Like, this great, amazing king, what is his throne really? His throne is a toilet. And that is his real power. And if you want to know what the, the idolatrous kings sit upon, they sit upon toilets. And they serve idols who belong in the toilets. And it's just, it's, it's not this scary thing, especially when we're comparing it to the God who sits on the throne in heaven. All right, think of that picture. But the, the throne where the, the sea of glass extends as far as the eyes can see, where there's thunder and lightning, and there's angels day after day, bursting into flame as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And there's real kings with real crowns, casting down their crowns before the Lord, praising him day in and day out, day after day after day after day. And then we have this king sitting on his potty. That's the picture here. And that's how we're supposed to see the, the threats before us, that's how we're supposed to see the things that we fear and the idols that build them up. They're just sitting on toilets. We have a king who sits on a real throne. And so, Ehud said, I have something for you from God. And Eglon arose from his seat. No, no, sit down, sit down. All right, uh, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pour the sword, pour the sword out from his belly, and the dung came out. All right, can you hear it? Can you feel it? All right, just imagine the like... <laughs> you know, and it like it slurps on in there and you're just like, let go. And it just like shoots, keeps going in. All right. Like butter. It just slides right on through. And we see what is, 
What is Eglon full of? <laughs> it comes pouring out. <gasps> All right. He is sitting on his potty, and out comes pouring the dung. All right. This is how you defeat the idols. This is how you defeat the ones who stand before a disabled man with a sword and just sinks right through. Now, this is a lot of things. This is, uh, this is kind of gross, yes. Uh, this is an assassination. This is uh, a deliverance, a defeat of the, the enemies of God. But this is a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice of the fattened calf. And this is a message of what, what really becomes of idols. And the ones who worship them, they are fattened calves offered up to the Lord. And uh, the, the word for blade here, it doesn't say blade. It says flame. And this is the flame of burnt offerings. Everywhere else it's used for burnt offerings. He, he lit Eglon on fire. And the aroma might not seem good, but to the Lord, it is a pleasing aroma. The idol has been sacrificed. This one that they used to pay tribute to now becomes a, a sacrifice, burnt and destroyed by the God who reigns and who is real. He thought he was getting this special thing. He had something for him. This is what the Lord has for him. And this is, this is what it looks like when the idols of the world come against the one true God. I think of uh, the story of Elijah, right? Another time when, when gods are tested and we see that behind kings there are their gods. And Remember that story of Elijah where uh, the worshipers of Baal and the worshipers of Yahweh are, all right, we're going to have a contest. And whoever can, can shout down from their God fire from heaven to consume the altar, they win. And as the, the, as the worshipers of Baal are, are crying out, they're cutting their blood and they're, they're sacrificing, they're screaming. And what does Elijah say? Scream louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Or maybe he's going to the bathroom. And here we have this, this king who becomes like his idol. He becomes this, this sitting duck, this waiting sacrifice, because he serves a God who just who cannot do anything. And at best is sitting on the body. This is a battle of, of epic proportions, and we ask, okay, what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? All right, first I want us to see what are the real battles that should be going on in your life? What are the real battles? It's not a battle for your happiness. It's not a battle that your circumstances might change. No, the battle that's going on is the battle of idolatry in each and every one of our hearts. And what God are we serving and which, which gods are we being transformed into? Are they the gods that are lazy and dumb and blind 
or the things that we think are going to protect us and give us comfort, who have great love for us and care for our souls, are they just illusions? Are they just gods that sit on potties and never come to our rescue? Or are we really serving the, the God of the universe? Why would we not serve the one who is all-powerful, who can deliver with the, the most unlikely? These are the battles that are being waged. These are the battles that we fight. And we'd be utter fools to pursue idolatry. Utter fools. To run after things that cannot save. To run after things that have no life in them. That is the war that we wage. And we need to learn to, to mock the things that would call us to worship them. To mock the addictions. To mock the struggles. To mock the the desires, to see through them. The fear of man, like, why, who cares if for three seconds a stranger passing you on the street thinks you have a nice outfit on today? <laughs> it's like, like, that's crazy. It's that kind of reality. We're like, no, we're, we're negotiating that every day. And like, oh, like having, having a thousand more dollars in my bank account, like, that'll save me until, until cancer comes or something real. Like, it didn't do anything. Like, like, like that, it'll be gone. We need a God who's more powerful, who can actually save us and do things. And a God who, who can take on the idols and can destroy them. Now, how does Ehud escape? How does Ehud escape? Uh, this, is, uh, this is the last of the the weird, rude things that we'll say today. Uh, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the, roof, uh, the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. All right. We are being polite once again. Uh, all right. How do you escape the royal commode of the king? All right. You can't go through the front doors. And he doesn't go through the front doors. He locks them. What's the only other way out? Yeah. Down. Ugh. Yeah, some people get it. Uh, <laughs> all right, think Shawshank Redemption. How does he escape? Ends up climbing through the trenches. Uh, we talked about how uh, two weeks ago that Judges is kind of like a spider going down the toilet. All right, we are going very literally in that direction. He goes down. He goes down the rabbit hole and he escapes. He escapes uh, through the most disgusting of pathways. It's a humiliating thing, but he gets out with his life. And how does he not get caught? He doesn't get caught because the guy smells so bad. Verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. What are they thinking? I don't want to go in there. <laughs> and so what are they doing? They, he's been in there a long time. Uh, I'm not going in. No, I'm, I'm not going in either. I, I can smell it. We know what he's doing in there. And verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. 
And when he did not, still not, did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the idols, and escaped to Sariah. All right. All of these pieces coming together, because he was in the royal commode, Ehud is able to escape. Because the smell is so bad, he has time for them to, to become embarrassed until they finally force the door open and find that their, their useless king has not been served by his useless idols and he is dead. Now, what is, what, what is the detail here? He, and he passed beyond the idols. What does he do? He strolls past all those idols that were supposed to be so powerful, that were supposed to stop him, that were supposed to consume him and destroy him. He strolls on by, a little smelly but successful. <laughs> and where does Ehud go? He goes to finish the job, verse 27. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, did not allow anyone to pass. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land rested for 80 years. Now, I could say, who's ready to be Ehud? <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, thankfully, you are not Ehud. And in these stories, you are not the judge. Where do you appear in this passage? You are the Israelites who are invited to war. That Ehud, he is the deliverer sent by our great king, the Lord God. And we have a great deliverer who comes to deliver us from the idols and the oppression, from the slavery to fear. Who is Ehud ultimately? Ehud is Jesus. Except Jesus is the, the ultimate, the fulfillment. This crazy one who is given out in all of his weakness to deliver the people from idolatry. We sang earlier about the, the one who came and he came to be born of a virgin to the, the poorest of families. So that he might be mocked and ridiculed as an illegitimate child. The God. The second person, the son of God, came in, in utter poverty, in utter weakness. Or if Ehud had one hand tied behind his back, Jesus had two. <laughs> and yet, what does Jesus come? Jesus comes the most unlikely of heroes. Not with a, a, a sword strapped to his leg but he comes to bear a cross and he carries his cross right up to the worst of spiritual toilets to death itself and he says let's do this and Jesus takes on 
death and sin and evil and even the law itself that would condemn us for our idolatry. All of these things are mounted against him. And Jesus, he says, you know what? Yeah, I'll go right into the belly of the beast. I will go straight in and I will die so that death may die. I will be destroyed so that destruction itself may be destroyed. I might become sin that sin may be destroyed for my people. That is what the story is about. This is not your call that you, don't, you, need to, you need to go strap a sword on your leg and go fight. No, thankfully, we have this one who fights for us. And who takes on all of these powers, even the judgment of God himself, and utterly consumes them. He goes deep, deep down and then raises three days later, while everyone else is celebrating that the Lord is dead, here comes Jesus and is in resurrection power. And so what is your call? Your call is to follow your great judge, your great king who defeated evil and now sends you out and says, you know what? Take on a soldier. Take on one soldier. Who is the one who is, the Lord is calling you to, to battle? Not in your own strength, but following your great king who is leading the way, who is hacking down evil and idolatry and sin and death for you. Will we follow our king into battle? Will we recognize that our Lord is so much greater than the idols that we've, we are tempted to serve? Will we set fire to the idols that would tempt us? And would we see them go up in flames as a great sacrifice to the Lord? Go. Go and fight idolatry in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us uh, spiritual eyes to see. Would you help us to see the powers and the idols and the things that captivate our hearts for what they really are? Would you help us to mock them? Would we ridicule them and tear them down that we may lift up Jesus, our deliverer, and that we may lift up you, Father, our great God who rules and who reigns over all things? Father, would you send us out with a great passion for destroying idols and for not submitting to them any longer. Father, would we not tribute to them and give to them and look to them for strength, but instead, Father, would we light them aflame? Would we burn them on your altar that you may be at all the glory and that we may serve you alone? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.